Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 178th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Daniel Zajac. Daniel is a financial advisor and partner with Simone Zajac, a hybrid advisory firm on the Lincoln Investments platform that oversees nearly $250 million of assets under management for nearly 300 clients. What's unique about Daniel, though, is the way he's driven an evolution in how the advisory firm markets itself, from the traditional approach of networking with local centers of influence and relying on existing client referrals, to developing a blog for those earning significant equity compensation from their employers that is turned into one to three new digital prospects for the firm every week, many of whom are bringing seven-figure accounts to the firm, even in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Daniel built and developed a niche in working with those who receive significant equity compensation, including the years it took early on for Daniel to gain any traction with his blogging efforts, how pivoting to focus more narrowly on equity compensation accelerated his positive results, how Daniel selected equity compensation as his emerging niche in the first place, what Daniel focused on the early years to figure out if he was on track when there were not a lot of not new clients coming through yet. And how even today, Daniel has found that when blogging and marketing is focused on a niche, website traffic of just a few hundred visitors a day or a few thousand per month is sufficient to drive material new business results. We also talk about how Daniel's advisory firm prices and delivers its planning services to clients. The digital meet and greet session they start with every prospect to determine if they're the right fit. The way the firm uses Dropbox in the data gathering process to make it easy for prospective clients to share information why the firm also offers tax preparation to clients as a part of its services, and how forming a niche has opened up new opportunities for lucrative hourly planning in addition to their traditional AUM business. And be certain to listen to the end, where Daniel shares his perspective on why it's so important to focus sooner rather than later, having struggled himself to find his own traction after his first five years as an advisor. How the path to specialization is really more about iterating incrementally deeper and deeper, and not just trying to pick the perfect future niche. And the importance of recognizing that even if you commit in an initial direction, you can always pivot to another niche focus if you're not happy with the results. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Daniel Zajac. Welcome, Daniel Zajac, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me today. I'm uh... You know, long-time reader, long-time listener, a little nervous, I have to admit today, but uh, super excited to be on the podcast. So thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on for a discussion around just the dynamics of, I guess, kind of niches and building niches. You know, certainly as people who are regular listeners to the podcast know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of, of building into niches or some just some way to specialize and differentiate yourself in a crowded marketplace. And and one of the things that I, I still continue to hear from so many advisors, just like, what's a good niche? How do I pick the niche? How do I make sure I don't pick the wrong niche? Like, what if I go down the wrong road? And and I know you have you know, really spent the past couple of years like building deeply into a niche, have had a couple of tosses and turns along the way, or are, are getting a lot of traction now. And so I'm I'm excited to have a discussion of just what does it look like when you try to 
create a, a, a niche, build a niche. Like when you're, when you're building your practice in your twenties and thirties and trying to figure out like, how am I going to make my mark and try to stand out in this crowded world and you know, get, get some clients and grow my business in the long run. You know, it's something that I think we, I don't want to say lucked upon, but, you know, just going through the process of, of getting up and started in the industry, growing up in a traditional, I'll say practice that did a lot of retirement planning. You know, we had a client several years ago now who who had this equity compensation need. It just kind of fit our model really, really well. You know, one thing led to another. And, you know, now we've really focused uh, my practice uh, or our practice on equity compensation clients. So for those maybe who aren't even familiar, just can you define this a little more? Like when you talk about equity compensation need and equity compensation clients, like what what kind of people or stuff or issues are we talking about here exactly? Yeah. yeah. So the, the the thing that we, all of our clients have in common is is they have equity comp, you know, as part of their, their compensation package at work, which, which typically includes, you know, incentive stock options, non-qualified stock options, restricted stock and employee stock purchase plan. So the, the, the tie that binds all of these clients is that as a big part of their total wealth. Okay. So in some way, shape or form, they've ended up with basically like a bunch of value on their balance sheet because a portion of their compensation from work is tied to equity, ISOs, non-quals, restricted stock, employee stock purchase. And so I, I guess so there, there's you're going to end out with this combination of there's a bunch of technical rules around how these things work. There's tax issues around how these work. There's unwind strategies about how do we deconcentrate you. There may or may not be restrictions depending on your role in the firm and what you're even allowed to sell or not sell or when you sell it. And the combination of those pieces together essentially forms a specialization for you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All those issues. You know, it's it's a typical financial planning client. But those are the key issues that we have unique experience in helping them with. You know, taking a step back a little bit, our two founders of the firm are both certified, or excuse me, CPAs. I'm an enrolled agent. So we have a really strong tax background. And a lot of the issues that you just touched on are financial planning, investment management, and tax-related issues as well. So we're we think somewhat uniquely able to help them with all of those issues, you know, integrating all of that into the financial planning and the wealth management. So talk to us in practice, like, what is it, what does it mean when you say you you've got this specialization or deeper expertise in, in equity compensation? Is this like, you've got a completely different financial planning process. You've simply got like particularly deep expertise here. You just like the planning centers around this stuff. Like what does it really mean to say like, this is where we focus versus, you know, we do comprehensive financial plans. And of course, well, as a comprehensive plan, if you come in with instead of stock options, we, you know, give you some recommendations on your instead of stock options, which I feel like almost any advisor would, would say we do like, studied in my CFP classes, I can get up to speed and give clients advice on this as well. Like what what do you do or what does that look like that makes it different from other advisors that say I can do that too? I think it's a combination of doing it over and over and over again. You know, a lot of our clients, you know, when I compare them to our, I'll say longer term traditional clients, there are a lot of retirees, right? And, and retirees typically came to us when there was an actionable item, you know, hey, I'm retiring or hey, I got a company buyout offer or you know, hey, I need help rolling over my 401k because I switched jobs, 
So it's not actionable that brought them to us in the first place. It's the same thing just on the equity compensation side. It's, hey, my company granted me X amount of ISOs and I'm hitting my first vesting period. Or, hey, I've, I've left my job now and I have 90 days to exercise. What do you think I should do? Or even tied into the uh, traditional retiree who's saying, hey, I retired and you know, I've, I've been participating in my ESPP plan for 10 years and I have all this restricted stock and I'm not really sure what to do with it. And, you know, oh, by the way, I have ISOs and non-quals too, because it just, it's accumulated over time and no one's really paid attention to it. And I haven't necessarily done any planning around it. You know, what do I do now? So they're, they're coming to us because of that actionable event. Typically, this part of their compensation makes up a meaningful part of their net worth. and we because we've done a lot of it, because we've studied it, because we have unique, we think, expertise in it, we can get really, really technical and really, really granular on this topic and, and provide really sound advice for the clients. How much time does that end up taking you then just to go this deep? Like, does is this also mean you end up having to charge a premium because these are still really time-consuming, complex planning scenarios to dig into in the first place? They, they are complex technical areas to dig into, but, you know, the more you do of it, the more you know what to expect, you know, and the more efficient you can become. So I think certainly on the front end, when we started in this area, we took a lot of time to really understand all of the rules and all the regulations and what we needed to know. And, and, and we learned each time, right? But now that we're doing so much of it, you become more efficient, you become more process oriented, and you're able to come to the solutions maybe quicker and your time more wisely. So I do think it's a niche. I, I think that there is a little bit of a premium on it because of you know the type of work it is. And I think our clients understand that too. And, and they want that, that expertise that goes with it. Well, I, I think there's an interesting phenomenon that cops up with firms that move into, into these kinds of specializations that is sometimes lost that you know, look for, for advisors that have been through CFP certification are just good at you know reading their books and doing some learning like you we can probably figure out a lot of this stuff like at the end of the day right you mean you went down the same road at some point you had the first client that had these questions and you had to research this stuff and figure it out the difference though is when you got a particular clientele that you do this for that you're good at that you do repeatedly you end out with this repeatable expertise that says by the you know the tenth or twentieth or certainly the thirtieth or fiftieth client, there's really not much left to research that you haven't seen at this point, or at least if you do, like you know exactly where to go and what to dig into because the other ninety eight percent of the client situation is entirely familiar. There's just this one little thing that seems to be different, so I'm going to dig in on this further. And you end out saying like, look, I can do the expertise that some other advisor might be able to read and study and analyze and get up to speed on, but It'll take me a fraction of the time because you get the accumulated wisdom of the last 50 clients that I did the same thing for. And I'll probably be able to spot more and unique and different things as well if there is an exceptional situation for you. Because I've done so many of these, I also can quickly spot the unusual planning issues that might arise. Whereas someone else who's still learning it on the fly may or may not catch all that stuff because they have no context for what normal is if it's your first time researching a client with this situation. Yeah, and I think that's where we add 
big value, you know, is, is that first conversation when we're talking to a, you know, a new prospect or, you know, somebody that's been referred or somebody that's come through the blog is they hear that in the first conversation because they're often saying, Hey, I've talked to, you know, this person or this advisor or this CPA. And, you know, maybe I'm not totally convinced yet, or maybe I'm not sure, maybe I'm just looking for a second opinion, but when we have that conversation, I think they quickly realize that, okay, these guys seem to, they're asking a lot more questions than other people have, or they ask that in a different way that I was able to understand. And that's where we show our value right away. And then, yeah, beyond that, you're right. Once you touch on um, things so many times, it, it is easier to identify the issues. It is easier to take them through the process that we take them through to, to get them to good solutions. And, and again, for a lot of our clients, this is you know, it's not 5% of their net worth or 2% of their net worth. You know, it's not only an ESPP plan that they're coming to ask us about. This is, you know, often a material part of their net worth, you know, 10, 50, 90%, you know, pick a number. It's a big part. So they want somebody who has, you know, a lot of experience doing it. And so as you go through this dynamic with with clients, you made you made an interesting comment there that just... It's not just that you may come to the table with more and, and deeper expertise or at least more expedited expertise because I've researched most of this stuff before, so I don't have to do it again. It's that at some point, clients tend to notice like, oh, he seems to ask more more sophisticated or more nuanced or just more knowledgeable questions. You know, I think we've all had that experience at some point where you know, you're looking for someone's expertise and they're answering you questions and you're thinking in your head like these are kind of basic questions. Like I was expecting harder questions about my situation than what you're asking. I kind of feel like you're still getting up to speed on this yourself. And you know, when you when you have a complex problem and you hit someone that really truly has experience at it, it tends to quickly get noticeable. Like, oh, this person's asking a whole other level of questions than everybody else I talk to. Like they clearly know their stuff. They're already asking me questions and highlighting things I wasn't even thinking about yet. They're two steps ahead of where I am. Oh, maybe I need to, maybe I need to spend more time with this person. Yeah. And I think that's, like I said, I think that's where we shine a little bit is, is we are able to ask those questions and, and they're not, you know, overly technical questions all the time. A lot of times you would, you would, if you heard them just in the casual course of conversation, you might not, you know, think, oh, that's a, that's a probing question or that's a great question. But after you ask a series of simple questions and, and you help the client understand, hey, that's an issue or that's a concern or that's an opportunity, that's where you can really start to make an impact with them. And again, just having the experience, they realize that, hey, we've been down this road before. And if you've been down this road before, you might be able to help me get to a solution that I like sooner, better, smarter, faster, you know, more efficiently, whatever it may be. So talk to us as, as you decided to sort of make your mark around equity compensation planning. So I, I guess my first question is just why again, equity compensation planning? I mean, you mentioned like we had a client that had this complex need and, and, you know, we we worked with them and went deep on it and then it sort of became our thing, but there's other clients that come in with other things that you could have made your thing. Why did this end out being the thing that you said, like, Hey, we've got some clients with some needs, but uh, we're going to make our mark on this. Like, how do you pick that? I think it was a combination of things. You know, I think it was a combination of one that client coming client coming to us at the right time. You know, at that time, I had started my blog, 
And, you know, I started writing on, you know, at that time, it was really everything financial planning. You know, what is a good retirement plan look like? What is an IRA? What's a Roth IRA? Just very, very simple, you know, financial planning 101 type concepts. But at that time, I also wrote on, you know, a cash versus cashless exercise. Coincidentally, that was one of my best performing articles on Google. So I had a client who had this need. I had a blog where it wasn't getting much traction at all. <laughs> you know, a lot of time spent, a lot of labor of love, no real traction, but I had one article that worked. It's also the way my brain works. I, you know, I take the Colby tasks and the disc tasks and, I, and I'm, I'm known as a fact finder, right? So I want to understand things deeply before I go out and advise to them. And this being a pretty technical area of the financial planning realm, it just fit really well with the way my brain worked. So, and then we had the tax practice that I briefly touched on already. So the, the CPA background, me being an enrolled agent, it was really all those things coming together at the same time. So as I'm working with this client and researching these topics, I'm quickly realizing that, you know, one, there's not a lot of people in this space, you know, and a lot of CPAs are, are reporting on it and doing some planning, but maybe they didn't even have all the answers all the time. You know, and then there was a lot of advisors who, like you said earlier, were touching on it and could get up to speed and provide some general advice. But no one was really, I'll say, digging into the nuance that, you know, I was looking for. So as I'm researching for the client, then I start writing more because that's what's getting some traction. And it just kind of all came together. You know, the blog, after several years of writing, started to pick up a little bit with more of this type of content and more, you know, hits on Google. This client turned into a couple more clients, and it just really fell all into place. I think it's an interesting framing that a lot. I feel like a lot of the advisors we see that end out with some sort of niche or specialization have, I guess, what I'll call a some kind of natural market or natural affinity to it. So, you know, I. I we we recently had a podcast with someone who you know specializes with management consultants at 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 big four consulting firms because he or big three because he used to do that and he left one of them and then he went back and consulted for all the people in his own business. Like we see a lot of career changers that switch into advising and make their specialization what they used to be in. You know, I see a lot of advisors in now with things like I I I specialize in teachers because my siblings are teachers, my parents are teachers. I'm like from a family of five generations of teachers. I'm the only person who didn't actually become a teacher. So I decided to make a niche out of teachers because I know them really, really well. Or, you know, I'm 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 in the medical world because my spouse is a doctor and I see all the stuff that he's dealing with and that the other doctors as hospital are dealing with. So I'm gonna focus there. And so like we 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 choose these things that we have some kind of connection or natural affinity for. And in some ways I think it makes it a little bit easier to choose a niche that way because you don't quite have to do as much as much research to understand that audience and what their needs are and what they care about because you already lived it or are part of it or have a natural connection to it and have probably already picked that stuff all, already whereas the path that you chose or the path I guess you just kind of en- ended out down and it and went deeper and it worked was it's kind of like, hey, here's a thing that's intellectually interesting to me that kind of fits my Kobe fact finder, tax centric EA background. I think I'm going to do a little more of this. Oh, it worked. I guess I'll do a little more. Oh, that worked. And a year or a few of compounding later, and it's like, well, I 
yes, this is my specialization now. All righty then. Yes, is really the short answer. The only caveat I would add to that is it wasn't a year. <laughs> it was probably four or five years. You know, from that first client to where we are today, it wasn't an overnight success. I would love to say it was, but it was one client. And then I think a year later, we had another client. All this time, you know, I'm writing on this, I'm researching it, you know, in addition to doing all the regular work we're doing, you know, in addition to doing your, you know, I'll say your typical advisor marketing where you're going, you know, to center of influence meetings and chamber events and, you know, whatever it may be to get your name out there. So I'm doing all these things. I'm spending all this time. I'm, I'm kind of making a, uh, I don't want to say a bet, but I, I, maybe a bet on just, hey, I like this anyway, so I'm going to write about it. And even though it's not turning in anything quite yet, you know, hopefully it will. And, you know, it did, you know, but it, but it certainly wasn't six months or a year later. I would say, again, between that first client and really the past year or 18 months when it's really turned on, there was a four or five year gap in the middle where it was a lot of work and a lot of energy and not a lot of payback. So a couple of questions then. One, I guess, like, how, how long did it take? From when you decided, like, I think I'm actually going to concentrate on this more and, and at least maybe try to make it a thing until you really feel like you started to see some material results from it. I would say probably three years. And so it took, it took about three years to get momentum. I guess first or next question is, how do you keep the faith for three years? That's a, that's a long time of writing blog posts and continuing to grind and putting more stuff out there. Like, how do you, how do you keep the faith and keep focused that long through the grind? Yeah, I, I think there was little successes along the way, right? And I think that's what keeps you going more than anything is little successes along the way. So, you know, when I was writing, I didn't go into a full transition on the blog into equity compensation only. So I was still writing on other things I found interesting you know, I wrote on a little bit of business succession. I wrote on, you know, again, financial planning 101 or 201. And then I would sprinkle in some equity comp. So it, it was gradual. But again, even the little successes tended to be on the equity comp side of things. So, you know, through that time frame, it wasn't nothing, 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 nothing. It was just little successes, you know, little increases in Google traffic. You know, again, I did pick up a client or two along the way. I did pick up some positive feedback in terms of, you know, hey, I read that post and, you know, I, I never really got this until I read that article. And, and now I kind of get it a little bit. And, and thanks for that. You know, so those little successes let me know that, hey, I'm on to something here, you know, and, and I'm willing to continue to go to go get it. You know, and I think that's a little bit of my makeup. Just kind of setting the big goal, so to say, and, and being willing to take those little steps to, to try to get there. I was going to ask you, you mentioned a few in there, but like when, it, when it's so, when it's so long to get going and, and kind of so potentially far and, and few in between and, and having some of those, some of those positive success moments, like what, what were success moments for you? Like when just even trying to figure out the broader question of, is this working? Maybe not to the level I want yet and I'm dreaming of, but just trying to figure out like, is this working at all? Like, how did you, how are you figuring out 
are we even on the right track? What what constituted little successes? You know, I think little successes, little things again, like, and I touch on a couple of them, but you see your traffic go up a little bit on Google and that's, that's good. That's a success. That's exciting. You know, you get an email, somebody said, Hey, I read this or that made sense. That's a success. And again, it wasn't no clients at all, you know? So every time you would pick up a, a client or two, you know, that was, that was enough to, to keep me wanting to go forward. You know, that was, that was enough in addition to other business outside of equity comp that was just coming in by continuing to do other marketing efforts too, that it was, it was enough to keep it going, you know? And I know those are small things, but they, for me, they were enough. And I knew that I was getting better. And I knew that the clients that were coming in were the clients that I wanted to work with. And, and you know, they were good size clients and clients I liked and clients I wanted to work with. So it was worth it just for that, that side of it to see those little successes just continue to feed off one another. When it reminds me a little of the, the old traditional approach when advisors get started in, in sort of the classic sales roles. I started when cold calling was still a thing. And one of the first things they would hammer into you early on when you start cold calling is like you you can't actually evaluate your success by the clients you get. Ultimately, the whole point of this is like getting clients. It's why we do marketing and sales strategies, whatever they are, whether it's cold calling or blogging or niches or whatever it is. But early on, like it's so uneven. It's so sort of lumpy. There's so much activity that has to happen for one client to actually turn into a client that often the recommendation early on was you like, you don't look at clients that you get. Yes, that's the ultimate end goal, but you have to measure the activity and whether you're getting the positive incremental steps of the activity. So like, you know, can't necessarily look to how many clients you get, but well, back then, like, but you can measure how many cold calls you did. You can measure how many cold calls turn into an actual conversation, how many of the actual conversations turn into a warm lead, how many of the warm leads turn into a meeting. And, it, and if you saw incremental little successes on those, then at some point it was just a numbers game. If you do enough of those, some clients are going to shake out. And then you, if you can figure out how to do that process better, more clients shake out. If you can figure out how to do more volume, you you get more business out of it. But it was much less about trying to measure clients early on and much more of kind of a similar thing of measuring activity and incremental improvement of the activity and the little successes as you frame it and and recognizing like if you keep having little successes and they compound it will add up to something at some point but it's sometimes easier to celebrate the little successes than what can still be very long dry spells between getting actual clients and business in the in the early years. Yeah, and again, this was just clients from the equity comp. So we there was, you know, not as much as I wanted, but enough clients coming in elsewhere that it was still working. But you also have to think that I was learning this at the time too. So every time a new client came along, you know, what we touched on earlier was you had to you had to dig in, you know, and you had to really kind of roll up your sleeves and say, okay, what's going on here? And, you know, what are the rules and, and why and, and how does that integrate into a financial plan? So when those clients were coming, even though they were few and far between, it was taking a lot more time to service them because you had to, you had to know what you were talking about, you know, and that took time, you know, so I'm learning, I'm servicing the clients and then I'm, I'm writing and, 
you know, writing takes a lot of time. <laughs> you know, it's, each article would, would take long enough to get it to a spot where I wanted it to be. That, that, that would take time too, but that would also make me better because if you can write about it, then you could talk about it, you know? And all those things were the building blocks for, you know, what it's, what it's become today for us. So it, it's funny to think that, you know, it was a couple years of time, you know, and energy to, to find some real success here. But, you know, I don't look at it as it ever being a grind. And I know that probably sounds, you know, some people might not believe that, but it was, we were always kind of working towards something. I don't think there was ever a question of, hey, is this, is this not going to work? It was, it was fun. You know, I like doing it. So it was easy to do. You know, it just happened that it, it, it started to, to, started to roll faster for us and then things started to fall into place. And so was there ever a challenge of justifying the the time you were spending on it or, or anyone saying like, why do you, Daniel, why do you keep doing that blog stuff? Like just go to a networking meeting already. What are you doing? Yeah. Internally, there was, I think a lot of that, you know, it was a lot of, you know, where is this going kind of thing, you know, and there was a lot of why is there being, why is so much time being spent on this? Or why is Daniel not in the office today? You know, cause he's quote unquote writing. So th- we had a lot of those conversations. I like how they, they couldn't even just say you were writing. They had to say you were quote unquote writing. <laughs> exactly. Like we air quoted that. <laughs> yes. I did air quote that behind the scenes here, you know, cause, cause when you're not in the office, people have no idea what you're doing. Right. But it was time. It was time in the office, but then it was also, you know, nights and weekends and, you know, mornings and, and whenever you could find time to get it done, so to say. So it was time in the office, but, you know, priority was the existing business and, and clients. And then, you know, spending a lot of time on my own, again, just because I liked doing it, you know, I liked learning about it. It was, it was new and interesting. And, and again, I was having enough little successes to, to kind of keep it going for me. Was there a, a, a point where, where you said like, okay, I, I, I think this is actually going to be my thing. Like it's, it's working. Like it's going to work. It's going to be my thing. Cause I'm, I'm imagining at some point there was doubt. Now it seems there's no doubt. Like you're all in on this. So was there some transitional moment when you said like, Oh man, I think this is actually going to work and, and be my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to say there was a moment I can, I can remember, you know, once or twice in the office being super excited when we had some clients who weren't local come on board, you know, and I remember running into others office being like, yes, we have one, you know, because it's a big commitment for someone, you know, to find you on Google, to give you a call and then to trust you to help manage their finances, you know, and, and create a plan. I can remember a moment or two in the office when that happened, but then after that happened, it just happened more and more, you know, and, at this point, to us, this is a lot. To us, this is a great number, but it's it's not atypical for us to have you know one to three new meetings a week just from people finding us on the internet of really qualified contacts that that we can talk to. Yeah, there wasn't a moment; it just kind of picked up speed, and and that's where we are now. So, in retrospect, is there like anything you could have done to make it faster, or that you wish you'd done differently as you were building this direction, or is it just like? It takes three years. <laughs> I think that I don't consider myself a great marketer, you know, and I think that you have some stuff out there, you know, the on marketer, you know, go out and educate and see what happens. And I think that's a lot of what I do is I try to, I try to write about this stuff in a very simple way, you know, a way that's easy to understand. You know, I post on my blog and, and I'm very limited in my, you know, LinkedIn interaction and Twitter interaction and, 
you know, just promoting, you know, repurposing the existing content. I just kind of let people find me how they find me organically. And I think that's having a better process behind that even today would certainly help us get this out to even more people. Looking backwards, finding a better process earlier would have probably sped up the the time between nothing, nothing, nothing to, you know, the snowball effect. But that's a hard sell internally when, you know, there's not much coming out of it, you know? So there's already questions of, hey, what what's, you know, Daniel working on or, you know, how, how long is this going to take to be successful to, to add additional resources and time and energy? That's all difficult to do. So, so I'm struck though, you're sort of making a distinction that like you got your, some of your traction and traffic basically from Google, like search engines found you and your unique specialized content. Cause you know, lots of people have written about how to, how to create an IRA and what it is, but not very many people write about optimal strategies to liquidate your ESPP. So like you, you got in a more specialized realm and Google found its way to you. But I'm struck as well that when you're talking about how else could we have gotten it out, you're you're sort of talking about other things beyond Google, relying on Google organic search of, of social media and repurposing content. And I guess basically other ways to distribute the content is where you wish you'd, you'd spent more time or focus. You know, I think that that would have certainly helped accelerate us. I getting resources out there, you know, maybe being more direct with our, you know, local market as well, hitting more centers of influence to say, hey, this is, you know, part of the story and here's what we're doing and and here's why we think we're uniquely specialized to do this, the type of clients we're working with. So I think having, you know, that outreach, I'll say more nationally through the Googles and the Twitters and the LinkedIn's and social as well as more of a concerted effort internally or locally is probably a better way to say it. Reaching out to the key influencers in the area would have been another secondary strategy we probably could have you know, put more energy into. So not necessarily changing the, the content itself, but just saying, how can we drive more reach, readership, eyeballs, whatever it is, like more, more results for the content we're creating as opposed to, I wish I'd written more content. Well, I, I certainly content's king. <laughs> you know that the uh, if you can write more, you know the more you're going to show up, right? And the more times that people are going to have the opportunity to share you and link to you and all those other good things that make uh, you know SEO so great. So additional content would have been would be great, but then getting that content out is is just as good. And in practice, how how much were you writing? Like. How many articles? How often? How long were they? Like, what what kind of content stuff were you creating that worked for you? An article for me was was somewhere between about sixteen hundred and twenty five hundred words per article. So it was a little bit longer than the short form stuff. It, it wasn't as long as the stuff that you typically put out, but it was somewhere in the middle. To I think the goal is really to try to identify an issue or two or an opportunity that gives some substance behind behind beyond just the stuff that was already so readily available. Maybe it was, you know, a different way to say something, or maybe it was an additional insight that I, that I had, or maybe it was something I took away from a client experience, just something that I felt that wasn't maybe as obvious or wasn't talked about enough that I don't think I could have collapsed into a 300 or 500 word article. You know, by the time you put a, an intro and a footer on there, it needed to be a little bit longer to give a little bit more, I'll say, meat on the bones. And and so it wasn't necessarily that you were 
literally trying to write like I must have at least 1600 words on this topic, but just you know, by the time I talk about an issue, identify of something of substance, give some comments about the thing itself, you know, give kind of a takeaway or two at the end of that. I roll all that stuff together. It's like, oh, I, I guess I was like 2000 words or so. Yeah. And, you know, I would love to say it was more uh, thought out than that, but that's really what it was. It was, you know, how long is it going to take me to get this, you know, point across that I'm trying to talk about? And that's the article. You know, that's what it's going to be. And and just what I found, you know, there becomes a cadence to writing and kind of a fluidity to it. And my articles, by the time I got to that point, were typically, you know, 16 100 words, 2000 words, sometimes a little bit longer than that. And so you noted that like writing isn't your thing. You said like, it's hard for me. It still is yet on you go writing articles, trying to get them out every week. So you know, I, I, I think you are certainly not alone amongst the people that have said like, yeah, I, I like, I think I'd like to do some of this. And I, I think maybe I have some expertise to share or learn, but writing's not my thing. You have you know, certainly not not allowed that or had that stop you. So how how do you think about just I do all this writing, but I'm not a big fan of writing? Or how do you get yourself through doing all this writing when it's hard for you to do all this writing? You know, I don't have a great answer for that. I think that it's just about putting the process together. You know, what I found for me is that when I know I need to write, for me it really takes, you know, blocking off a set of time and saying, Hey, here's the time I'm going to write because uh, the hardest part for me is sitting down and starting to get my thoughts on paper. You know, once I'm there and I'm five or 10 or 15 minutes in, I could sit there for a couple hours and write, you know, no problem. It's just, it's the hardest part is for me just getting started, right? Getting over the hump or getting the first few words on the page for an idea. So for me, it's just about saying, Hey, I know I need to write. I have these, you know, topic lists that I want to write about. I'm going to put away Friday afternoon or Friday all day, and I'm going to write on Friday, you know, and, and at this point, you know, everyone, it's blocked on my calendar. Everyone knows, okay, you know, Daniel's going to write this day and, and I go and write. So it's just about, it's about kind of carving out the time and, and just committing to, to sitting down and doing it. Interesting. And, and, and so the, the actual act of blocking off time, it sounds like is a, a pretty big factor and, and driver for you on this putting time in your calendar. This is my writing time. Yeah, absolutely. For me, I'm a, uh, I'm best when I'm in somewhat of a routine. If I can, you know, block time and on this day or that, you know, then I know, Hey, this is what I need to do. It's worked for me. You know, it's, it's helped me say, okay, this is, this is the writing time. I'm going to get in the zone and, you know, it's not perfect. You know, the, the time moves or, you know, some days I'm, I'm a better writer than others. And, but you just, it's working. And, you know, I've learned to, I think, write like I talk. And that seems to have struck a chord with people when they read my, my articles. Are there other pieces of, I guess, the process of what you do just that helps you get through it and, and get over the roadblocks? You just said like put, blocking off a chunk of time is a big piece for you. It sounds like just you know, brain dumping some thoughts so you can get through the pain of the first 15 minutes is is a big one for you. So it reminds me, there's like a sports metaphor there of like, you know, running through the initial pain and then it gets easier for that, for your, your run or your exercise. Are there, are there other things along those lines of tips or stuff that you found that works that helps to power through? You know, I, I don't, I, I, I wish I had a great answer to that. And I'm not sure I do, to be honest. I, I think, 
it's just about sitting down and doing it. You know, I think that it's, it's easier now because I see the impact that it's having. You know, I see that, you know, I'm getting some education out there, which I, which I love. And, you know, we're having prospects reach out to us, which again is great for business. And it's still something that, you know, it's, it's difficult, but it's, it's still fun. You know, I mean, hard things are fun, you know, and it's not the, the most natural just because I didn't grow up writing, but you know, at the end of the day, you put the effort in and then you have something that is usable and educational and informational. And, you know, that makes me feel really good, you know, and, and that's what keeps bringing me back. The fact that, Hey, you know, there are people reading this and, you know, that's fun. You know, I like doing that. And, and to see the end product is, is great. And I love that. And that's what keeps bringing me back. And did you ever try to pursuing you know, like uh, writing classes or anything like that, or just done your thing that works for you and, and evolved it yourself over time? At the beginning, I read books like Elements of Style and On Writing Well, you know, a couple of books that just about writing in general, that gave me some good insight. I have it, any, uh, any particular ones you would recommend, like memorable or especially helpful for you? I think On Writing Well was, uh, was the one that pops in my head right away, which just gave me some good insight into, you know, just writing 101, you know, and, and how to say things maybe in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And, and now there's technology, you know, I use things like Grammarly. And I do have an editor that, you know, will now go through and scrub some of my articles and, you know, clean them up for me a little bit, which is nice, you know, because it's really my natural ability, I think, is to, like you said, do the data dump, right? Put everything on paper. Um, but it's nice to have someone come in and, and polish it up, you know, and say, okay, we can say this a little bit more clearly this way or, you know, change these words or, you know, even grammatically, how do we update this a little bit more clear? So that's part of the process now for me. I think you make an interesting point of just other tools to help as well. So you mentioned Grammarly, which for those who aren't familiar, is just like a plugin that'll look at your writing and help you spot everything from typos to grammar mistakes, right? Because typos are pretty straightforward to fix. Grammar mistakes sometimes are harder to catch. And it just, you know, there is software to help do this now, as well as as people to help. So did you say you, you've you've hired an editor or taken on an editor as well? I have not hired an editor, but I do have a consultant editor who, that I, who I use for, for some of the stuff as well. And so how do you find an editor to help? I found her through, I'm trying to think, it's been a couple of years now, but I think it might've been through the FinCon community is actually where I ended up finding her. Just kind of asking around a little bit. That's where I think I found her. Is it someone that still does other editing work? Like someone you want to recommend for for listeners or are we gonna gobble up all for time <laughs> well i think uh candidly i think she does other things as well her name's callie roberge i'm not sure i'm gonna pronounce that right and again i found her through linkedin or i'm sorry i found her through fincon i think uh, a couple years back yeah she does all of my editing and so so tell us what this looks like today like you've, you've spent years building in this direction what does it look like today of you know, the, the practices that exists and these, these niche clients that are coming in, I'm presuming other clients that were not niche because they built up with you along the way before this was your thing. Paint us a picture of the, the advisory firm as it exists today. Yeah. So our, you know, I think I touched on our practice was built on the very traditional retiree client, DB plan, DC plan, IRA rollovers, you know, how much money can I spend in retirement? That's still a big part of our practice. You know, I think that's a part of a lot of people's practices out there you know, because we've had a lot of those clients for a long time. The newer clients coming into the firm, generally these equity compensation clients. So, 
Again, we, we typically have maybe one to three new prospect meetings a week that are finding us you know, through Google and other sources. And, and what's interesting is the web has flown out now from that. So now we're getting additional referrals in from that. The process is, I think it's very typical of you know, any other firm that's out there. You know, it's, it, it is a fact-finding conversation at the front end of it. We typically use you know, the, the video software that's out now, whether it's GoToMeeting or Zoom or whatever it may be. What's, what's your video, video conferencing software of choice? We, we were using Zoom, but Compliance actually gave us a no-go on Zoom recently, but I think that's coming back. So now we switched over to GoToMeeting and they're all really good. You know, I think that each one has its own intricacies, but I think generally speaking, we, we like them both and you know, we're happy to use both. Having now lived in both for a while, like what, what do you find is just, I guess, either easier for you to use or easier for clients to use? Like, are you, do you have a leaning between them? Yeah, I think Zoom is really easy to use. <laughs> I really do. And it's funny, um, just now in the environment we're in, everybody's using Zoom, but it really is just super user-friendly. So I'd have to lean that way if I leaned anywhere. And so because now you have this expertise around equity compensation that's not necessarily specific to the area, just it's an interesting point that you need a process for meeting with clients initially virtually with video conferencing because not everybody who types this Google search is in your area. Like you you end up getting prospects that could be anywhere. Yeah, I mean, we are we're we're just outside of Philadelphia is kind of home office for us. And the clients now that are finding us are literally nationwide, you know, everywhere from the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, down to Florida and Texas, you know, up the East Coast border and, you know, up through, you know, Massachusetts and everywhere in between too. So, you know, our clients are really all over the country at this point. They typically send an email because they found us on the blog or, you know, use Calendly, which is also on the blog to schedule a meeting. And typically they say, hey, you know, we've been reading for a little bit and, you know, love to set up an initial consultation. So, that first conversation is, you know, typically about 30 minutes or so, just kind of a meet and greet, get to know you. Are we a good fit for you? Are you a good fit for us? And we talk. And at the end of that meeting, you know, it's really a, a break point. And it says, hey, you know, if, if it makes sense for you guys, if, if we think we're a good fit for you, let's reconnect and, and have that, you know, hour long, you know, data dump, so to say, that deeper dive into you know, tell me about your goals, tell me your expectations, tell me about, you know, what you're trying to achieve, your income, you know, so on and so forth. We use Dropbox commonly to uh, get all their information. So, you know, that hour long meeting is typical of any meeting, you know, it really is just, hey, let's learn about you and let's learn about us. And then all the technical stuff, we just have them, you know, put into a file, you know, tax returns, plan documents, so you just, you make like a new different Dropbox folder for each client and share like that Dropbox folder to them? Yep. Yeah. I guess I'm presuming like compliance is fine with that. They they thumbs down Zoom, but they're thumbs up on Dropbox. You know, they gave us the okay on it. Yeah. So Dropbox was okay. Okay. So so each client gets a a Dropbox folder. Hey, just toss your stuff in here. And then obviously it syncs right up to you and you can take a look at their situation, understand further the, the numbers and the technical detail stuff. A lot of that stuff to, to go through the detail with a client over a call is, is almost not necessary on the front end. And we just find it to be a lot more productive to say, hey, just throw that all in there and let us just look at it. Because now we know what we're looking at. We know what we need to see. We know 
how we want to see it, and we'll, we'll just get back to you at that point. So it just saves time. We need to know more than anything the, the qualitative stuff, right? What are you really trying to achieve? Tell us about your goals. Tell us about your family. That's the stuff we need to hear from you. The technical stuff or the quantitative stuff is what it is, right? You know, we can look at your documents. We can pull all that. We can see what the numbers are. And then it's, it's our job to bring that together, right? It's our job to work with you to bring together our conversation and then everything else that you've given us. And so, so how does this process flow from there? Like I find one of your articles, it looks interesting. I've reached out. You schedule an initial kind of virtual meet and greet. So we get to know each other. You ask me to give some additional financial information via Dropbox. I'm presuming we're still in the prospect phase here. Then what comes next in this kind of journey towards getting a client, particularly getting a virtual client? Then comes a presentation, effectively. You know, so we we've done all we need to um, to get quantitative stuff. You sent us the the data, and then we basically say, listen, let's give us two to four weeks of time. You know, we're going to do some you know due diligence. We're going to do an analysis of everything we see. We're likely going to come back with questions. We're likely going to come back with concerns or not concerns. Additional information we may need. You know, then we'll come back to you and we'll do what we call a presentation meeting. You know, so basically in that presentation meeting, we you know talk about everything, you know, all the things that, you know, you've uncovered, all the things that we've uncovered. We put together some observations, we put together some recommendations, and we start to build the financial plan, right? And the investment solution. So that meeting we typically say is, you know, 90 minutes or so, where it's the first meeting is you talking about you. The second meeting is us, you know, giving you feedback on everything that we see and everything that, you know, that we do. And then at the end of that, there is a specific list of recommendations and observations that, that we give clients. You know, that includes things from you know, investment management to stock option strategies to cash flow projections. We use eMoney primarily as our go-to resource. And that's what we use for all the plans. And they get documents for all that as well. So for, so for clients that, you are, that you're going through this process with, you kind of queue up to observations and recommendations. So this is, this is still in prospect meeting phase. And if they say like, yes, we want help with this, then essentially then they would engage you as an advisor and you're getting compensated as you go through and do implementation. Like how does this, how does this work at this point? I would say the vast majority of our clients, Michael, use us, I'll say the traditional way a lot of advisors get paid. They use us, we're compensated through assets under management, right? So the vast majority of our clients say, listen, we we love what you could do. We want to be, we want this fully integrated, you know, investment management, financial plan, tax planning under one umbrella. We understand you're compensated through the assets. We're going to implement through you and we collect an asset fee for that uh, or an advisory fee for that. For clients who don't want to go that route, which is, you know, some, because a lot of these clients, when you think about the equity comp world, a lot of them might have all of their money tied up in company stock, and there might not be any liquidity options for any number of reasons. So they might not have assets that necessarily fall into that traditional model, or they might just want information and, and education on this part of it, because for whatever reason, they're comfortable doing their own investment management, right? But they do recognize that, hey, I have a need here and uh, I want some professional advice. So we do have some clients who use us hourly as well. To be honest, it's, it's a model that I never really thought that I wanted to get into the hourly model because, you know, just the concept of tracking time and, 
it was a little bit of a, a new addition to our traditional you know, advisory model, but it's been a model that, that clients have wanted uh, help, have, have used. You know? And so we're happy to work with clients that way too, just to provide them the advice and do a financial plan and give them the recommendations. And, and some clients work with us to implement those and other clients say, hey, I'm going to do it on my own. And, and that's okay too. You know, because yeah, we uh, we recognize that we have this unique ability and uh, this specialization, and and we continue to do it. And so, what do you what do you charge for clients that that are going to be hourly and not AUM to to make this work for you as a business? We charge three hundred an hour. And and is that just straight hourly, like however many hours it takes us to do this incentive stock option analysis for you? We'll bill you that much. Do you tend to? Like project fee, it uh, we estimate this is going to take you six hours, so we're going to charge you eighteen hundred dollars for this analysis. How do you actually handle hourly engagements? We just bill the time, you know. So we typically say on the front end, "Hey, it's going to range anywhere from five to fifteen hours, right?" Because I want to give them a, a scope of magnitude of of what it could be. Then once we get the documents, we're able to see what's going on and say. Okay, well, there's only you know one lot of stock options. This is not going to take as much time as someone who has you know multiple stock option grants over multiple time frames. So we give them an estimate, and then you know we bill on actual time spent on their case. You know, I think what clients that 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 front end again, I, I quote that five to fifteen. I'd say that front end work for more of a strategic plan I think it's pretty typical I'm gonna I'm gonna say it takes normally seven to ten hours I think of time for us to give them that that first run through with one or two iterations on it and that's something that they can use and walk away with the interesting part about equity compensation is and I think this is actually for a lot of a lot of planning in general but it's not really a one-time set it and forget it type solution you know because especially I'll say with equity comp you know the stock price is going to move between now and three months from now, right? And potentially materially, right? So if you get three months down the line, you know, what we set in place today, while strategically sound, might have some technical changes because of a moving stock price, for example. You know, so that front end, I said I say typically takes seven to ten hours, but more longer term, you know, it could be additional work if they want us want want us to to do that for them. So how does this come together? Like if if they do you give them a choice? Like we can work with you on an ongoing assets and our management basis or an hourly basis. Do you start with like, here's how we work on an AUM basis, but then if they say they don't want that, you give them hourly as a second choice. Like how does this actually get presented to them as, as solutions or options? Yeah. And I think it's, it's, Hey, we typically work with clients. The vast majority of us, of our clients, you know, work with us through an hour or excuse me, an asset under management. This is what that fee is for us to manage your assets for that. You have, you know, comprehensive financial planning, investment management, you know, tax planning, so on and so forth. But if that's not for you and you know, you're not comfortable with that, we could certainly work with you on this hourly side and where we just bill you for time. And it's really simple and straightforward. We'll do all the same work based on what you're looking for us to do. And we'll just bill you for the time spent. And do you ever worry like the offering hourly is going to cannibalize the the AUM? And, and someone says like, oh, wait, I can just pay you for a few hours and I don't have to move a portfolio? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, it happens. Or just yes, you worry about whether it might happen. You know, y- yes to both. You know, yes to both. 
You know, I think that you're right. It's a weird dynamic, right? You know, there's there's this whole issue right now of not issue, but this whole breed that's out there wanting to push, you know, subscription fees or hourly fees. And and I do think there's a market for that, right? But there's also the the traditional AUM model, which again, I think is to be fair, I think that's you know our preferred model. You know, I think that's the model where you can fully integrate things and give this totally sound solution. But we also, there's a lot of great work that can be done at hourly rates too. And we don't want to push those people away. And I think one of the, the pain points we've, we've been having with growth, you know, speaking freely, Michael, is that I want to work with these clients who, you know, maybe aren't committed to an asset under management model, or maybe don't have the assets to do that now, but I want to help them and I want to work with them. So what's a way that works for them? And what's a way that works for us too? Because you are still getting paid three hundred dollars an hour, like it's it's not like AUM or pro bono work here. Like we we are still getting paid. Yeah, exactly. We are still getting paid, and it's clients are often coming to us to for you know we are still getting paid. And and so at the end of the day, like yes, it may cannibalize. No, it doesn't stop you. It's uh, it's an evolving question. <laughs> you know, it's something we've talked about, and it's something that we're. You know, we, we've tried to figure out. I just think it's a hard question also to ask somebody to commit, you know, future assets to something they're not really sure of quite yet, you know, because it is such a, an unknown, I guess. So do you get clients that progress? Like they, they do the hour, they take you for hourly and then they end out becoming AUM clients anyways? Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Because I think that what clients realize is, Oh man, there's a lot of value here, right? And you know, do you know what? Now that I am sitting on all this cash, I do think I want some professional help managing the money as well. And you know, we're just kind of first in line at that point to help them with that need too. So we have a lot of clients who have you know started hourly and and progressed into that you know traditional asset under management model. If they like, if they move over and do that switch, do you do a like? We'll, we'll, we'll waive your hourly fee if you become a, an AUM client later, or is there some blending or just like, hey, we worked with you on this. And then if you decide you want to do that, we are happy to work with you on that as well going forward. It's typically the latter. You know, the time we spend uh, working on your your case was time spent. And, you know, if you want to move forward with this, we're happy to to do that as well. You know, now we don't, we won't charge you hourly because we're going to collect revenue through the asset under management side of things. But if they do decide to be AUM up front, you don't do a separate planning fee for the subsequent work that's just bundled into the aggregate AUM model at that point? Yep, that's correct. And and is there an asset minimum that you have just to run the business to make sure that math works for you? We, we don't have an asset minimum. You know, it's something we've kicked around. Uh, generally, the clients who are coming to us, you know, would, would meet a necessary minimum for us. So it's not something we put a hard and fast on. That that kind of gets to the you know the right fit conversation up on the front end. You know, if we do a good job in that you know thirty minute conversation, you know we're going to understand whether we're a good fit for you or not, and whether we can help you or not, and uh, whether you're a good fit for us and vice versa. So we typically identify that early and go from there. And so help me understand kind of the the amount of planning work and stuff you do leading up to observations and recommendations in this kind of initial proposal meeting when then you ask them for for doing business with you versus what you do after that meeting if they decide to become clients or particularly if they're going to engage you for hourly work like what are what are they ultimately getting after versus before and leading up to that meeting yeah i i guess maybe the distinction i i wasn't clear on in the front end was 
that conversation is typically in maybe that hour long, you know, front end piece. So if we're going to, if somebody's going to be an hourly client, they do sign an engagement agreement, they sign an advisory agreement that we're going to build them hourly. And then that presentation meeting and all the due diligence we do to get to that presentation meeting is time that we're going to bill them for, right? Typically, that client who is going to be the advisory client who's going to come over and say, hey, we want you to manage all of our money, you know, we are going to put together an investment proposal for them and we are going to do that. And we're, we're going to get that agreement, so to say, on the front end. We're going to have that conversation that, yeah, we are going to want you to manage the money Here's what it's going to look like. Here's the investment strategies. And then because they've kind of verbally committed to doing that, then we're, we're willing to go ahead and do the rest of the financial planning work for them. And so when you get into this kind of equity comp work in particular, I think you said you'd use eMoney for your planning software. Like can, can eMoney handle the stuff that you do in this area? You know, I think eMoney is the best of the the options in terms of financial planning software when it comes to what's available for equity compensation. You know, they, they do a really good job of uh, allowing you to enter individual grants, transaction history, the tax planning module there is really strong. So from that standpoint, I think they do a really good job of getting all the data together. When you get into... I'll say more granular uh, strategies and implementation of, you know, we want to sell, you know, this lot, or we want to sell partial this lot, we want to exercise that. That's where it gets a little bit more technical. And that's where we rely on things like Excel, you know, behind the scenes. And then, uh, you know, having a tax practice as well, we also have, you know, LACERT, which is a tax planning software, which we can model tax returns to. So just the nuance of this stuff, uh, eMoney does a really good job, I think, of, I'll say, the basics. But to get really detailed on it, we do use a combination of eMoney, you know, some Excel spreadsheets that we've made, and then actual tax planning software. Interesting. And, and so what does the firm look like overall at this point in terms of number of clients, number of advisors, asset base, help us understand the overall environment that you're that you're working in. Yeah. So the firm is, you know, Simone's Ajax Wealth Management. And we have five CFPs. Jim and Rick are the the founders of both CFPs and CPAs. Uh, I've been with the firm since 2004. Ben has been with us since 2009, I believe, also a CFP. And then we actually purchased uh, an RIA several years ago that integrated that. And uh, the gentleman that came with us there, Michael, is, is an advisor as well in the firm. And then we have an admin, st- admin staff of you know two to four, depending on the time of year, that helps us kind of with all the, uh, the administration side of things. That's a wide range of admin staff. That is that because you actually, as CPAs and EA, are you doing tax returns as, as part of your business with clients? Yeah. So we do have a small tax practice and you're right. That is part of that, that process. So there's two full-time and then, you know, two part-time depending on the time of year. And so is, is, is tax preparation something you do for all clients, for some clients, like part of the AUM fee built separately? How does, how does that side work? It's funny. It's an area that we've actually, we're a little bit getting away from to be honest. But then uh, as this equity comp stuff came, it's actually an area where when you're dealing with equity comp, 
you're kind of doing a tax return anyways, <laughs> a lot of times, because a big part of it is managing the cash flow, understanding alternative minimum tax, understanding how much tax you're going to pay or the AMT credit. So there's so much tax planning and cash flow planning that goes on with it that you're kind of doing a tax return often anyways, or at least projecting a tax return is about to say it. So, you know, naturally we would say, hey, we should, you know, offer this as part of our service. And we do offer as part of our service. And as, as we're doing more, it's, it's becoming more common that we will bring it in-house. We do bill for it separately right now. It's not part of any other engagement. It is one, one fee that's totally outside. But we also wonder, you mentioned cannibalization earlier, if we are cannibalizing other relationships, you know, and, and we do like having that separation of powers a little bit to say, hey, let's have a, another set of eyes looking at this. Let's have another person on the team. And so we do refer a lot of it out as well. And we're totally comfortable doing it that way too. You know, it, it's actually a little bit more client driven than us driven. Some clients like having the fully integrated story. Some clients still like doing their own tax return, even though they can get pretty complicated. And then other clients like having that third party to say, hey, let's have that third person on the team. And you know, we're happy to coordinate with their existing CPA or refer one of the CPAs out that we're comfortable using. So the model is really open-ended in that sense. So I guess functionally, like this is, I guess, a, an accommodation or a nice additional service to offer, but not something you necessarily push as core to the business or a growth engine per se, just like, hey, we have this expertise. If clients want us to do it, they will, will, will do it. And if they don't want us to do it, that's cool too. That's exactly right. And, and it's really funny because we get this side of it, the equity comp side of it, you know, the AMT projections, AMT credit, but there's a lot of other things that go on on a tax return, you know, that, that may not be related to this part of it, you know? So that's where having a CPA part of the team can add a lot of value, you know, because yeah, we get this and yeah, we could speak this language, but, you know, taxes can be complicated, you know, outside of this. And so what's the, what's the overall breadth of the practice in terms of, I guess, assets under management, if you're primarily AUM based and, and how many clients is it that five CFPs plus team are serving? Yeah. So that I'd say assets about 250 million kind of in total, total family size is probably 250 or 300. So the asset base is around 250 million. The client base is 250 to 300 clients or so. So just right in that sort of roughly million dollar average, obviously for most firms, a bunch that are smaller and a few that are much larger, but that's kind of the sweet spot for clients for you guys. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. And I would say that as the equity comp has started to roll, the average client size is certainly going up kind of on the high side of that. So, so talk to us a little bit more about that. Like what is you know, this, this whole sort of, I think for some firms like famed unicorn, like how do seven figure clients find you on the internet? And like what, what kind of clients are finding you? How does this really work and play out in practice? Yeah. Uh, you know, so a lot of my clients have incentive stock options, right? So they were issued incentive stock options at a pre-IPO company or a newly IPO company or a company that's been around for a little bit with, with grant prices that are really low, you know, and a stock price that's substantially higher than that. So, you know, I don't know, typically between 30 and 50 years old and, you know, maybe a lot of options at a really low strike price for a company that's been public for, you know, several years. 
You know, that's that's an example of somebody or a typical client that works with us. You know, I touch on some of the the older clients who have found us on the internet who have similar stories, but have been been with their companies maybe a little bit longer and have a series of ISOs or a series of non-qualifieds plus some restricted stock or ESPP that has just accumulated, you know, and, you know, now they're at retirement or approaching retirement with, you know, seven figures, you know, or more. And this part of it, the equity count part of it just seems to be a big percentage of that. And they might be looking for a new advisor who has a little bit more experience in this because their existing advisor doesn't help or isn't as versed. And they're just looking for a second opinion, or maybe they've been doing it by themselves and now they just want that additional help. So it really runs the gamut, you know, or I have, you know, clients who have contributed to an ESPP for a couple of years and the stock price has just, you know, shot up, you know, and, and now they have a lot of money in a single stock because they made some good decisions about contributing to an employee stock purchase plan. So it really, it really runs a gamut that there's just a big need for a little bit more detail than, than what they're currently getting and, and they're willing to find it on the internet. And so talk to us about how in practice this, this actually turns into business. I mean, is it just literally like they read an article on your blog and feel so inspired that like they Google you and figure out a way to do business with you? I, I mean, like, how does this, how does... You know, I read an article on Daniel's blog actually turn into Daniel gets an opportunity to work with this client. It's really that simple. Um, you know, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but the email I typically get first is, you know, hey, I have instead of stock options, you know, I read your blog. My wife and I have read your blog. My husband and I have read your blog. You know, we've been following you for a little bit. You know, I need some help. Can I schedule an initial consultation? And, and that's really how it happens, you know, and that's, it sounds simple, but it's really that, that framework. And, and so you're, you're not necessarily doing like, Hey, I'm doing a webinar, come hear me stuff or like join my email list and then start asking them to do business. You're putting content out there and they're reaching out by email to say, I read your article and I need some help. And can you help me? Yeah, that's really it. You know, I do have a, a call to action, right? A CTA on the website. So I have an ebook that people can sign up for. So if they sign up for my ebook, they then go into my my queue. Every time I write an article, if I write an article that week, that email or that article gets blasted to my distribution list Thursday at one o'clock. So I do stay in contact with them that way. But other than that, you know, that is really the that's really what I do. You know, I write articles and I have my email distribution list. That's right now what's generating contacts. You know, I don't, we get some Google traffic. I'm not sure if it's, you know, a lot or a little by, you know, depending on who you talk to, but it's enough for us. And the people that are finding us are exactly who we want to find us. And I think that's the most important part of it. You know, for us, it's not about having you know, 50,000 hits a day or a month or whatever the, the good metric is. It's about having the right people find us and then reach out to us because for whatever reason, they feel like we're authentic or they feel like they could talk to us. You know, whatever that hump is for them, you know, I don't know. We've struck it. I'm not sure why, but we, we've struck that that balance of being educational, being approachable, being authentic. And I think that's why clients reach out to us. I think you make an interesting point that 
particularly in the advisory firm context, when just you know a seven-figure client you know, may pay you fees of close to or upwards ten thousand dollars a year, like you don't actually need a huge number of hits to your website to make some really good business math. You just have to get the right people. Like you just have to connect with the people that you actually really want to do business with. And if you're getting them, you need actually very, very few to have a couple of them raise their hands and decide to work with you and and suddenly have a, a, a an active, thriving, growing business. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're getting seven-figure clients that are calling you out of the blue, I mean, what advisor wouldn't want that, right? What advisor wouldn't, you know, <laughs> want more of that, right? And and that's what we've been able to do, you know. And again, it's it's happening enough for us that you know we're busy. You know, if it if it happened twice as much or three times as much, it, it it would be even more interesting. You know, I I we'd have to hire additional resources and staff and so on and so forth. So it's a really nice pace right now. But yeah, they're they're the right clients that are finding us, and and that's you know I think that is intention. You know, I I do say we kind of get lucked into this space. Now it, it is becoming more intentional about what we're writing about and why we're writing it and, and who we're getting to, and, and it's working. And so, uh, so I do have to ask, like, how, for this whole, they they click on a thing and they get your your ebook and, and get out of your mailing list. So what what do you what software do you use to manage the mailing list? I use Mailchimp right now. Okay, and then like, how did you make the the ebook? Like, how did that? come about? Well, I guess, what is the ebook and how did you, how do you make an ebook? An ebook for me is just a really, it's, it's a longer blog article to some degree. You know, this one in particular was on equity compensation, specifically on incentive stock options. The one that now is a little bit more technical in terms of, you know, it's the title is your guide to incentive stock options. And it's just a really long form article on incentive stock options and how you may be impacted by how much you make, how you may be impacted by when you exercise, how you may be impacted by stock volatility. And then at the end, it touches on a couple, you know, simple concepts that, hey, you may want to consider these few action steps. And, you know, I call it an ebook, but it's really just a long form article, it's a long form blog post. That I hired, you know, an editor to clean up, and then I hired a designer to put in a book format, and then we posted it on the site. So, having lived this now for a number of years, and and have gotten gotten the compounding engine going with with some traction. So, you know, having lived this journey successfully, like what what do you find the rest of the advisor community doesn't get about like blogging for business? kind of painted this cool picture of just we we put out stuff and we put out more stuff and, and at some point people start showing up and you do a little more of it and a little more shows up and like compound enough and it actually turned out to be business but you know we still don't see in the aggregate very many advisors particularly active in the, in this world of of blogging and content marketing so what what is it about blogging that like you have figured out that others just don't don't seem to figure out or pick up the same way. Yeah, I, I think that we're still learning. First of all, you know, I think through this conversation, you hear all these opportunities that I think that exist that we haven't capitalized on yet, and because it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy, and there's a lot of ideas that we can continue to do to move this forward. So, I think there's so many things that we can do to to improve. But I think what 
I realized and we realized was, you know, we wrote a lot on simple financial planning things. And I think that's where a lot of advisors start. You know, you start with, you know, the things you talk about all the time, traditional IRA, Roth IRA, you know, what does retirement planning look like? You know, how do you manage tax in retirement? Just these these things that people talk about a lot. And it's a crowded space, you know, and and how do you stand out in such a crowded space other than just doing a lot of doing it over time, put a lot of time and energy into it, you know, but it's just so crowded. You know, how do you show up on page one of Google when it's such a crowded space? We took the time to really carve out this technical area, you know, where it is easier to show up on Google, you know, and it is an area where there's, you know, less crowd, you know, there's an area where if you do write something that's meaningful or you do write something that's important, that people are going to find you quicker, you know, and it's, it's a real need too. you know, this is, that's the thing with, with equity compensation, it is, you know, there's a lot of do-it-yourselfers out there, I think, or, you know, a lot of generalist advisors as well, which is how we started, which is great. But this is an area where there's, there's a constant, I think, need for real technical help. And, you know, again, we kind of lucked into it. We fell into it. We, we ran with the opportunity we had, but that's where we carved out this space. So, you know, I think what advisors can take from that is, you know, find an area where you can make a difference, you know, and maybe find an area where it's not as crowded, or even if it is a crowded space, can you get, can you say things in a different way that somebody hasn't said it, or can you go deeper into an area that people haven't gone? And that's what I think advisors can do to really start to stand out more if they want to go into the niche route. And as you noted, kind of linking that to to earlier, like finding an area where it's not as crowded and recognizing that you don't like you don't need a zillion people coming to your site and reading your blog to have meaningful business results. Like, can I can I ask? I mean, do you do you track like how how many people come read the blog? come read your blog every month that you're getting, you know, several leads a week with seven figure accounts on an ongoing basis. Yeah. So we normally get two to 300 Google hits a day, organic. Again, I think a lot of people out there would say it's not a lot and I don't think it's a lot either, but again, it's enough for us. Well, that's true. It's like two, two to three, two to 300 a day. I mean, you're talking about five to 10,000 visitors from Google per month. Which, yeah, like relative to like your know, media companies, I mean, you know, Market Watch just like millions a day, I think. That to me, it's just interesting. Like a few hundred hits a day, a couple thousand a month is all it takes when you're focused and you're getting several quality leads every week on an ongoing basis because you went after a, a focused thing where you can capture a couple hundred a day and not a generalist thing where it's hard to stand out. Yeah. And I think that's all it. It's just, uh, it's, it is very niche. It's very detailed and we're able to stand out, you know, and it doesn't take a lot, a lot of hits. <laughs> so what surprised you the most about like building, building a business and trying to build into a niche? You know, the, the, the trouble with growth, I think has been really interesting as you have more, you know, prospects and more clients and more work to do, just creating the process to track where you are, to track who's doing what, to track where you are in the client relationship. It's been really interesting to have to figure out solutions to all those, I'll say, non-client facing issues internally to make sure that the process was was working for everybody. You know, 
it's it's grown, I'll say, uh, you know, quickly enough where, you know, just like anybody, you have some growing pains, you know, internally, just getting through process. It's something that we're still working on, but something that we're getting better at as we get, you know, more at bat. So it's been really interesting, though, how much, you know, time and energy it takes to to solve those, I'll say, growing problems with, I'll say, this accelerated growth that we're experiencing. So what was the... What was the low point for you in this journey? You know, I, I don't know if there's a low point, Michael. You know, I think that I think I would have liked to have success, not that I'm successful. I think that we would have liked to figure this out sooner rather than later. You know, it did take a, a long time to get to a point where we do have these type of prospects coming through, you know, as often as they are. So I don't know if that's, that's saying there's a, a low point, but I, I think there was a lot of frustration in how am I going to really be different. You know, I'm another certified financial planner. I'm another, you know, financial advisor who does retirement planning. You know, all these things that I think every advisor says about themselves. So I think that the low point or the low period was really trying to figure out a way to say, okay, what can we really be good at? You know, what can we really define as ours and say, you know, this is this is who we are and this is what we're good at and and this is why and this is how. And I think finding that when I'm looking back at it, really being unsure of what direction to go, I think 10 years into my career and not really feeling like I'm doing enough to bring in new business or generate new opportunities or, or really differentiate myself. I think that was looking back on it, that was a time where I was kind of saying, okay, well, how am I going to survive in this business as a career? You know, how am I going to make this 30 years if I can't really bring in enough, you know, new business to support? the firm, you know, and what I'm doing. So I think that was difficult when I look back on it to say, what's going to make me different and what's going to make me valuable to clients. But it sounds like answering at the end of the day, wasn't necessarily this, like, I've decided in a stroke of, uh, of genius, I'm going to be a, a equity compensation specialist because I believe this is the strategic business opportunity of the future. It sounds like the, the way you ended up answering this was more of just Here's the thing that's interesting because I did it for a client, so I'm going to write a little bit about it. And oh, look, I got another client, so I guess I'll do a little bit more of it. And I did it for a while. And like, well, well, darn, this actually worked out. Like, this is really becoming something. That it was, it was very organically evolving for you, as opposed to a like a grand master plan of this is the niche I'm going to make for my future and why. Yeah, I, I think it was organic. You know, I think it was very organic. And, and again, that doesn't mean it was, you know. Along the way, it was unintentional because I think it became more intentional as it started to go. And I think it just kind of reading and talking and writing and it just, it, it did become intentional. So I don't want to, I don't, don't want to portray that it was, you know, just kind of fell on our lap and, you know, so be it. But it was, yeah, it wasn't this, it wasn't a laid out intentional plan from the beginning, but it was something that we realized we could be really good at. We can make a difference. And something that we did over time, just slowly put a little bit more energy into. And as we put more energy into it, because we realized we were making a difference, that it became a core part of what we do. You know, so yeah, it sounds, it was definitely, you know, the long game. And, and I think we're in the third inning, you know, or the second inning. I think there's still a lot more to grow here, but it wasn't a, a grand master plan that we sat around a conference table and, and drew up five years ago. It didn't stop you. You just found a thing that worked a little and iterated and did it a little more and and let it compound. 
Yeah, and, and just let it compound. Yeah, and, and again, it, it was we had other business. We had other clients that were still coming in from the traditional business and, and other efforts we were doing. So we certainly weren't at a point where it was you know, all or nothing. So that stability allowed us to be nimble and be flexible more in what turned out to be a long game, you know? And that that ability has, has really obviously benefited us now as we're able to do more and more of what we're doing with this. So then from the flip side, do you have worries or fears that as you go further in the direction of this niche that you're you're going to alienate or lose existing clients because you used to be focused on we're traditional retirees and now you're doing this equity compensation focus thing instead? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, yes and no, right? I do think that with a niche, there is a concern that are my other clients going to, you know, feel like they're not being serviced. But I think having the firm around us where there are other people doing other things helps, right? And there's a lot of truth to that where, you know, others in our firm aren't as integrated in equity comp as I may be. So that balance of skill set is is really good for us as a firm as a whole. So I think that's really important that that we have that so we don't alienate our traditional clients. But again, I think that all these equity compensation clients also have the needs that our traditional clients have too. You know, they're asking how can I be more tax efficient? You know, when can I retire? How much money can I spend in retirement? You know, what does my investment portfolio look like? So again, a lot of the questions are the same questions the resources that are funding those questions may come from a different spot, but the questions are still the simple financial planning questions. You know, um, one may come from a four hundred one k, the other may come from equity in a company, but the questions are still the same. Well, and I'm I'm struck that on the one hand, a lot of firms, I think, if they're already established, they worry a lot about moving towards a niche. Uh, out of again, I think sort of this fear of alienating clients, but I'm struck that you're sort of framing it from the opposite end of, hey, it was a lot easier to do the steady slow build towards this deeper specialization because we have other clients, we have other business going in. That's actually what let us do this as a slow play. And now even that it's gaining momentum, we still have other advisors at the firm that are servicing those other clients. So, you know, Daniel might focus more and more on on equity compensation clients, but it's okay. There's plenty of other advisors of the firm that can still work with our traditional clients and, and that it's it's easier because you had a broader firm as opposed to being a harder pivot because you had a broader firm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, and I think uh, you know, a lot of the retiree clients, while I'll say that the second generation of advisors have relationships with them, they also still have relationships with the older advisors in the firm too. You know, so it's a nice balance that we all have together, you know, and, you know, it speaks to the growth too, you know, as you bring more clients, you do need more staff and more team oriented services. So your clients may not be talking to the same person, you know, all the time, or there may be additional resources on their team, additional CFPs. So, Hey, if they can't get one person, they can get the other, you know, or if there is a, you know, near retiree client who's working with another advisor, who might have an equity compensation question, but it might be a smaller part of their need, you know, we can get pulled into that too. So, you know, having the different skill sets is huge, you know, and it is one of the reasons that we haven't as a firm said, this is all we're doing, right? Because we recognize that we don't think we ever want to be just, this is all we're doing. It's going to continue to be a big part of what we do. And we're definitely going to service these clients. 
And even if we need to hire more staff to, to help with this particular need, we'll do that. But I think that we're always going to want to balance and diversify our business to serve, you know, other people too, you know, and other types of clients too, because we do have business owner clients. We do have retiree clients. We do have, you know, other accumulators. So it is a blend of people across the board that we can service. So any, anything that having now gone down this journey that you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago, like, what, what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago? <laughs> I, I, I think that just having, you know, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to think, what could I tell myself from 10 years ago? You know, I think it's been a pretty good yeah, ride. What do, you, what do you know? What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? I think if I knew anything, I would have specialized sooner. You know, I think that's what it was. I think that coming up in the industry, you know, I, I came in at 23 years old, 22 years old, right out of college. I got my CFP right away. I think after that, I got my CLU pretty quickly. You know, I got all these designations and, and everything. That was great for the first five years to really learn the business. And then I think I probably had a five-year gap after that where I did struggle to find traction. You know, maybe even a little bit longer to say, I have the education. Um, you know, I've been around five years. I feel like I should be having more success than I am. I feel like I'm doing the right things, but I'm not really seeing things pan out. And I don't want to say that was wasted time because I'm sure I learned along the way. But if I could look back and I had started to highlight maybe this area sooner to say, okay, I have this great broad education now. I have the CFP. I have some experience where can I really make a difference? And I think if I had recognized that earlier, for me, particularly getting into this niche sooner, you know, I can only imagine where we'd be now. So finding a spot to make a difference sooner would have been really, really helpful as opposed to, again, I don't want to say flounder because I don't think that was the case, but, you know, not really making as big of an impact as soon. So what advice would you give for younger and newer advisors that want to want to go this direction but maybe don't have the existing client base or or broader firm that you do you know, as you said like it was one thing to do this shift because the firm had other clients coming in and other opportunities at, at it kind of running in parallel so if you were if you had been stuck out on your own and and it was it was just you on your own would you have approached this differently you know it's it, it's hard to say that i think that Looking back and seeing where I am now, you know, I think I can make an argument to say to someone, hey, maybe this is an area that you want to go in right away. You know, this being any niche that you, you know, not particularly the niche that I've serviced, but find something that you like, find something that you're good at, find something that feels natural for you and see if you can push it, you know, see if you could you really embrace that, you know, don't be afraid to pivot if it's not working. But I, I think that where we found success is you know, it doesn't take us kind of being out and about all the time anymore to bring in new clients because of the power of the internet. And yeah, that's hard, especially for someone new. But if there's a way to commit that time early to finding that market, I think there's, there could be a lot of value in that. You know, you just got to find out what's authentic for you. You know, that's a big thing. What feels right to you? Because that authenticity is going to shine through. So what comes next for you from here? That's a great question. So we're going to continue doing the blog, you know, continuing to write. 
it's actually led to a lot of, you know, other cool opportunities. You know, you know, I've had some people call to, to license content. So we've licensed some content out there, which has been a great, you know, thing that I didn't even see coming. We're going to develop some online courses to just continue to repurpose the content and expand the education. You know, we're licensed now to teach, you know, CE and CPE credits for CPAs and CFPs and other insurance. So starting to maybe do some of the speaking and the education that exists, hopefully doing some of that. You know, I think there's a, there's an opportunity even on the, the technical side of things or the, the tech side of things more specifically to create some, some software that could maybe help do additional deeper dives into things like ISOs and non-qualified stock options. So, you know, I have some ideas there. I'm not sure where those will go, but I think there's a lot of opportunities that have kind of come out of what we've already created in terms of this content. We're going to continue writing, continue to service the clients, hopefully do a great job at that, and then pursue some of these other things that have been tangential to the business, to the blog. So as we as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast around success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means different things to different people. So you're on this you know, incredible path that's now really starting to compound with business coming in. You know, as you said, like lots of opportunities to take the content in new and different directions as well. But I'm wondering like, at a personal level for you at this point, how do you define success for yourself? You know, success is, is you know, having fun at what we do. You know, it, it, it's funny because we talk about growth in the business. You know, I the work-life balance right now, I enjoy what I do. We have really fun clients that we work with. But I also get to be home with my family and my kids and, you know, maintaining that work-life balance while also doing all this fun blog education type stuff, working with clients. It's a really good spot to be in. And it's, I find happiness and I would define that as success to be in a spot where, you know, I'm not worried about where the next prospect is going to come from. You know, I'm not worried you know, where the next new piece of business is going to come from because we've created this flow and it, it gives me some peace of mind that, you know, I can do all the other things that I enjoy and have a really good balance because of that, you know, where I'm not worried about, we got to get a new client in the door because we have that flow now created. And to me, that's success, you know, all the growth that goes along with that, you know, we're, we'll figure that as we go along, you know, we have thoughts and plans in place. It's nice to know that I can continue to, work, meet really great clients, be at home with my family. That's all. That's how I'd find success. Just being happy doing it. Well, amen. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Daniel, so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Michael. Hopefully your viewers get something out of this and I uh, can't thank you enough for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content, Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.